Welcome back to Bruin Success, the UCLA podcast of career stories and helpful strategies from alumni who work in diverse industries around the globe. Every Bruin has unique passions, interests, and experiences that have shaped their life path and career trajectory. Today's interview features Cal Penn. He's a 2000 graduate of UCLA and has built an impressive career in Hollywood, served in the White House, and has authored his first book. He took some time to share his journey with us and how he defines Bruin's success. For even more insight into his life and accomplishments, pick up his new book, You Can't Be Serious. It's full of funny, consequential, awkward, ridiculous stories from Cal's life. As the son of immigrant parents with very little, he went very far from getting leading movie roles to working with former President Barack Obama. He pulls back the curtain on the nuances of opportunity and racism in the entertainment industry and recounts how he built allies, found encouragement, and dealt with early reminders that he might never fit in. We think you'll love it. All right, let's jump in and talk with Cal Penn. Hi, Bruins. Welcome back to the Bruin Success Podcast. My name is Carolyn, and I'm here with Melissa today, and we are very excited to have Cal Penn as our guest. Hello. How's it going? Great. Thanks so much for being here with us. We're excited to uh, talk through some of these questions and hear about what you've been busy doing and share this information to our larger Bruin community. Thank you for having me, and and, uh, thanks in advance to the larger Bruin community. Y'all have had my back. I appreciate it. <laughs> That's great to hear. I'm glad you're feeling the community love and connection. Um, well, let's just jump right in. We'd love to hear about your professional trajectory and the experiences in entertainment industry, in politics. Uh, do you want to get us started by sharing some of the pivotal moments that have led you to where you are today? Sure. Well, it's a, the, your transition to that question is actually perfect because I uh, I was an out-of-state student as an undergrad, so uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey and, and came out to UCLA prim- primarily to pursue a career in entertainment. So I started as a theater major, ended up switching a couple of times, like a lot of us, um, and ended up in sociology with uh, a concentration in theater, film, and television, because I, I still knew that that's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, but I, I was really, thankfully, you know, I, I felt like there was a, there were a lot of opportunities on and off campus just by virtue of where we were, right? So whether it was uh, scheduling classes around the number two bus to go to auditions <laughs> before I had a car, or um, or whether you know whether it was doing student films or or TV productions, there was a lot that I remember early on kind of gave me a little bit more to put on a, an otherwise non-existent resume um, and kind of gave me a little bit more confidence going out there. That's great. It sounds like you definitely took advantage of the area and UCLA's prime location. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the, you know, one of the, uh, one of the things I was looking at when I was, when I was looking at where to go to school, um, I applied to a bunch of places, obviously didn't get in everywhere. Um, was, I, I really appreciated when I, I had the chance to visit campus before I said yes. And, um, it was just such the perfect balance between academia, um, it seemed like a lively social scene and people who were also career-minded. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think UCLA is really a fantastic place to sort of start your educational experience at the next level, but then also kick off a career. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that was part of your success. For our next question, we'd love if you could walk us through your experience in deciding to pause your, your acting career and accept the position of Associate Director of White House Office of Public Engagement. Tell us more about that, please. Sure. Yeah. And, and you, um, you described it right, which sometimes I think that it's a, for people who know me from the film or TV world, especially if you know me from only like hard R rated comedies, it is very jarring for people when they hear, Oh, he also took two years off to go work for Barack Obama. It's sort of like, is this in the, like in the polarized hell world of politics that we live in today? I feel like people are like, wait, is that a joke or did that actually happen? So, <laughs> uh, so I appreciate how you how you asked the question because it was a sabbatical, and part of the part of the reason that I wanted to do that was because of my my love for public service, and part of that certainly um, predates coming to UCLA. But I do remember that there was this commitment to service that kind of um, permeated the student body and, and campus life, and that stuck with me in my career as well. So, you know, the, the, 
less talked about things, I think, when you have your 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 main career or the one thing that you you kind of you know do to to put a roof over your head. Obviously, most people have like three or four other passions, and one of mine continues to be um, cultural diplomacy and then uh, public service. So um, there was a chance. I was working on a TV show called House. Um, this was probably what I I want to say like seven seven or eight years after graduation. Um, and, uh, and Olivia Wilde was one of my, uh, co-stars on, on this show. And she had a plus one to a Barack Obama event. Um, and I, I, you know, she said, Hey, do you want to come with me? I was like, uh, not really. <laughs> was, uh, she was like, come on, it's a, it's a, it's an Obama event. This by the way, I should mention, this was, this was October, 2007. So at this point, Obama is had just come out of a summer where he was 30 points down in the polls before the Iowa caucuses. So this is, you know, 12, I think it was like 12 Republicans and 12 Democrats running uh, for their respective party's nomination. So such a long shot. Right. Um, and, uh, and she goes, yeah, he's gonna, he's doing this event for, for artists um, in LA where he, he wants, you know, he's going to ask people to help him out in Iowa and, and in campaigning in the early States. So why don't you be my plus one? And again, I was like, nah, not really. Um, and she said, what are you talking about? I saw you reading his book a couple of months ago. And I'm like, well, yeah, I, I mean, I read a lot of books. Uh, and she goes, well, don't you, you know, he, he was against the Iraq war. Weren't you against the Iraq war? And I'm like, well, yes, but look, I also read books by people I vehemently disagree with. That's why I like to read. Um, you're not dragging me to a political event. I know what these are like. Politicians come through LA and New York all the time and they pretty much ask for money or they ask for you know, you to help them out and then they don't really do the things that they say they're going to do. So no thanks. And then I think she said something like, well, it's an open bar. And I'm like, I am in. So, uh, so deciding I factor. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it was definitely a deciding factor. Um, and before going in, I think, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of Bruins will relate to this, like the side of you that wants to go to something because it's an open bar, but also the like nerdy side of you really wants to ask an interesting question. So I went home and before going to this event the following week, I, I looked up um, a couple of policy papers on the Obama campaign website. And I was reading through uh, the then Senator's climate change proposal. And there was something in there about ethanol. And I said, um, and I tell, I tell this story in the audiobook in a lot more detail than I'm telling you right now, but, um, but it was such a pivotal moment. I remember there was a section on ethanol and it said, uh, you know, the Senator is going to invest in corn to turn into fuel. And I remembered that like a couple of months before I read an article in foreign affairs, which is that like thick blue right magazine that I subscribe Absolutely. to because I'm a gigantic nerd. And, uh, and there was an article in foreign affairs that said that if we invest too much in, in ethanol in, in corn to turn into ethanol, um, the price of corn for people in developing countries is going to go up because the market doesn't distinguish between corn for industrial production and corn for human consumption. So I was just reading this thing going, boom, there's my question. There's my smarty pants question because it's going to be a room full of artists. Everyone's going to ask about the NEA funding uh, proposals and and arts education, but not me. So I go with Olivia to this Obama event. It's only like 40 people. He's making the rounds around the room. I probably had like three glasses of wine. So I'm feeling loose. I'm very and, comfortable, uh, ready to ask. Right. And Obama comes over to Olivia and I, and he, you know, says hello. And I say, Senator, I've got a question for you. You know, I read through your climate change proposal. You know, if you invest heavily in corn to turn into fuel, isn't that just going to drive the price of corn up for people in developing countries? And he looks at me and he goes, oh, yeah, I read that article in Foreign Affairs, too. And, uh, you know, if you read my proposal carefully, you would have seen that I'm investing in corn-based ethanol as a bridge to cellulosic ethanol so that we can produce fuel from things like our grass clippings and raking the leaves in the yard one day. And he kind of smirks and walks off. And Olivia was like, you just got schooled by Barack Obama. And I'm like, I don't know at what point my, like, semi-drunk hubris was that that I would know more than somebody who sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But um, but I said what I had to say and I got schooled for it. And anyway, both Olivia and I signed up to volunteer that night. We're like, okay, this guy's kind of the real deal. Let's, let's do it. Um, and when I went to Iowa uh, for what was supposed to be a three-day weekend of campaigning, um, there were a lot of things that, that really inspired me, including, you know, for, uh, for somebody who at the time far less polarizing America. I, I didn't really have any 
uh, party-specific political affiliations. And I remember there were so many people, I, I focused a lot on youth outreach, and a lot of college students were deciding whether they wanted to caucus for Barack Obama or Ron Paul. And you had to declare a party affiliation to do it, so they weren't sure which caucus they were going to attend, the Republican caucus, Democratic caucus. But for them, the big issues were, um, I, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it was Obama and Ron Paul were the only two candidates in either party who weren't taking federal lobbyist money. Um, and so that was a big issue. So anyway, there were all of these these kind of big ticket things that today we don't think about as uh, as that big of a deal necessarily. But um, anyway, that so I, I stayed longer than the three days, uh, ended up moving to Des Moines, Iowa for about a month and a half. Um, there was a writer strike going on in Hollywood at the same time. So we, we had to stop shooting a certain amount of episodes of House. So cut to this weird hybrid of like, shooting when we were allowed to shoot, going off to campaign. And then a little over a year later, against all odds, Obama wins and there was an opportunity to serve at the White House. And I was like, well, what do I say? No, I'm sorry, Mr. President-elect, I have another stoner movie to make. Like, there's just no good answer. So, um, so part of the calculus of wanting to do that was being really inspired by what I had seen the year before, but also knowing that my, my first love will always be performing, but wanted to take a, a break um, in the longer version the unabashed plug, the longer version of that's in the audiobook. Very nice. Thanks for telling, telling us that story. Uh, yeah. I can definitely see your, your different interests and your passions, and we're definitely going to circle back to that later. But I'm also really curious, you know, once, once you had made that commitment, you positioned yourself uh, to take on that role, what did that look like day to day? Can you tell us a little bit more about that position? Yeah, the day to day, what, so um, there's no, I was a mid, I would say a mid-level staffer. In, in fairness, right? And what that meant, and I was in the, the public engagement office, which is essentially the outreach office at the White House. The three jobs that I had, I was the president's uh, liaison for uh, Asian American and Pacific Islanders, for young Americans and for the arts communities. Um, and so those were three totally different buckets, but what that meant was when, um, you know, when we were working on things like the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell or the DREAM Act, uh, or whether you could stay on your, Parents' health insurance plan until you're 26, which is one of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. Those were those uh, sections of of those pieces of legislation. The outreach part of that fell on my desk. So depending on what the issue was, like being able to stay on your parents' health insurance plan until you're 26, or the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, had young bipartisan support across the board. It was just the oldies that were fighting over it along along party lines. So in that sense, I had a very easy job. The Dream Act was a little trickier but still sort of fell uh, on the the uh, the more progressive side across party lines. So it was meeting with people who um, who had constituency groups that were affected by by all of these things and and taking that information to the policymakers. So I'll give you one clear example. Uh, youth advocates wanted um, young people to be able to stay on their health health parents health insurance plan until something like 29, I think it was. And the math on how the ACA was going to be paid for, didn't allow that to happen. So I think the first proposal was like, okay, 24. You can stay on your parents' health insurance plan until 24 and then compromised at 26. So by today's standards, where compromise is a bad word, people would look at that and go, Obama sold out. Or you could look at it and say, okay, 26 is actually a lot better than what it used to be. So having those tough conversations where sometimes people are disappointed because they didn't get 100% of what they wanted, which is fair if they're advocates, that's their job is to push for something. Uh, and then my job, you know, as the representative of the president is to explain why we're at the place that we're at. So I loved it. It was, um, it, as you might have gathered from the way that I'm talking about it, most of the stuff that I worked on wasn't vitriolic or sexy enough to make it on to cable news, which meant that I really enjoyed my job without a lot of the distraction that I think people face today. So to that end, I mean, you've, you've had a lot of success in these very different areas, you know, for, for your, those, if you, as you look back on on those successes, what advice might you have for someone who maybe wants to get into politics, wants to get into entertainment, wants to be an author? Um, what would you look back and say is some advice that you have for not only young Bruins, but also folks who want to pivot in their own career and make some of those adjustments that you did so flawlessly? Thank you. I, you know, I, I've, the, the whole reason that I wrote this book was to answer some of those questions because I realized, you know, when, when I was a, uh, an undergrad, there really wasn't a book or, or really even an article about what it's like as a young man of color 
uh, trying to break into the entertainment industry. I would say the same thing for public service. And it's less about whether it's a career in entertainment or public service and more about barriers to entry. So one of the subtexts of the book and all the stories in it are how do you deal with barriers to entry? Um, no matter who you are, no matter what walk of life you come from. And in my case, a lot of that was being told I was crazy repeatedly. So I remember, you know, thankfully, look, thankfully Hollywood is so much more diverse than it was 15 or 20 years ago when, when I was on campus. I remember some of my, some of the people who were a real thorn in my side were actually the South Asian students at UCLA. So the Indian student union on campus would go out of their way to let me know that I was not considered part of their community because I wasn't a science major. Like it's so crazy. Right. And I, I laugh yeah, about it today because I can't believe that I let that get to me as much as I did, but that was kind of the, like, uh, so there was the barrier to entry of how to enter an industry that's otherwise closed to somebody like you. But then there was also from within my own community, there wasn't a lot of support. So the reason I bring that up in the book and the reason I bring that up when you ask me that question is, I think a lot of times we're, we're so used to looking at like, what's the end goal and, and how do I get that office or how do I get that job? And a lot of times the conversations on how to get there are a little more complex because you find that you're needing to explain to people in your own community who otherwise root for you and might support you in, in any number of things, why you want to do something that they consider to be crazy. Um, and so to, that was something that just like no class would tell me how to deal with that, right? Um, so I feel like that's one of those things. But then the other piece of it was uh, this dichotomy always of being like, okay, how, how um, for how long do I put my head down and work really hard uh, versus when do I know that it's time to make a jump? So like the you know, the cliche of this is, okay, people who, people who graduated in the last five years, they all expect to be VPs like six months after their first job. You know, they don't want to work hard, all of that stuff, right? That stereotype. There's some truth to it probably because it's a generation that grew up with technology. And that means that you have information and access and opportunity at your fingertips in a way that people who are older never had. So the sense of impatience, I think is, is, it's not unvalid or not invalid. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. On the flip side, if you, you know, you're going to have to earn something. So these conversations between that dichotomy between imposter syndrome and uh, entitlement, I think is such a fascinating one, depending on which industries we're talking about and how people are accessing them. So I've experienced both, right? I've, I've, I've realized that I've been in jobs for way too long and I didn't feel comfortable making my voice heard and letting it be known that I feel like I have the skill set to move on and to advance a little bit. Um, I've definitely felt like the imposter syndrome. I mean, my, my White House job, there was, there was huge imposter syndrome at first. I remember asking Valerie Jarrett, the, the, one of the president's senior advisors in my final job interview, I said to her, um, Valerie, I just need to know the answer to this. Uh, are, am I, is there any part of me being hired that's happening just because I'm an actor? Um, and she, uh, she looked at me and said, I can assure you you're being hired in spite of it. And that's I was just like, fact. okay, that stung a little bit, but I appreciate the answer. I appreciate the, the candor and the honesty. The honesty there. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think as the, as industries change so much, that's one of the things that, um, that I really, uh, the one piece of advice is, is to just figure out what the right balance is for you. So I, I was, uh, I've never been very good at selling myself. And some of that comes from the combination of the things that we just talked about. And then some of it comes from just by virtue of being an actor, like as an actor, you know, you, you strive really hard for years to get an agent or a manager to represent you at auditions. So they're the ones who really do all the, the work to get you in the room. And then once you're in the room, it's on you. Um, so they're sort of like recruiters for lack of a better comparison in the traditional job market. Um, so when it came to this White House job, you know, the, the real way that I ended up getting hired uh, at the end of the campaign, everybody who worked for, uh, for the campaign got an email that said, if you're interested in a job with the incoming administration, upload your resume to a website we've set up called change.gov. And so I looked at this website, I poked around, I filled out an application for a White House job. And I uploaded a CV that I had to make because an actor CV was not sufficient enough, right? Right. Totally, totally different. I, I create a traditional CV. I upload it. And I only told one person. I told my, my acting manager, who in the audiobook I describe him as every character from HBO's entourage in one person, um, which is pretty <laughs> accurate. Like He's a ridiculous human being with a heart of gold. So somebody who you really want to be in your quarter. But I told him, I was like, hey, I applied for a job at the White House. If I'm qualified, I assume they'll let me know. Um, 
maybe I'll take a sabbatical from acting. You know, he goes, do you, are you done with acting? Do you want to give that up? I said, no, of course not. It's my first love. But how can you say no to serving your country if there's an opportunity, right? So, so I did that, didn't tell anybody else. Nobody called. And so I was convinced that, okay, well, the reason nobody called is because I'm just not qualified for to be a White House aide. Fair. Um, and then six months went by, I think it was about, no, less than that, October to January. So uh, at the Obama's inauguration, um, I was invited to participate in the inaugural concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And one of the perks of this is you could bring close friends and family backstage afterwards to say hello to the incoming first family. And so Mrs. Obama backstage says to me in a way that I thought she must be saying to everybody, which she did, uh, hey, I hope you stay involved. And so I said, oh, of course, Mrs. Obama, I would love to. My manager was standing next to me and he says, well, you know, he applied for a job, right? And I look wow. at my, my Hollywood manager, I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't say this, don't go down this path. You do not represent me in the public service world. You know, like, please keep your mouth shut. And Mrs. Obama said, what are you talking about? And he doubled down and he goes, yeah, Cal applied for a job at the White House and nobody even called him back. And so then she, she looks at me and she goes, well, who did you apply with? And I said, oh, I, I didn't want to bother anybody. So I just uploaded my resume on change.gov. Now, the look that she gave me is a look that I think whether you love or hate Michelle Obama is irrelevant to this story. There's a look that, you know, she gives people because she has a low threshold for bullshit. Right. And so this look is just like as if I had dropped a piece of pizza on the floor, cheese side down, and then picked it up and ate it in front of her. Is the look. <laughs> and and she called her husband over. She goes, Barack, come here. Tell him what you just told me. And I was like, oh my gosh. No, no, no. Well, Mr. President, like I, I applied for a job at the, at the White House. And he said the same thing. Well, who did you apply with? And I had to tell him the same thing. So then he said, well, look, you know, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to have somebody find your resume and we can look at and see if there's a right fit for you. But at that moment, I mean, the, I tell the story because obviously it's ridiculous and everybody knows the Obamas and they're effectively leader of the free world for two terms. And that's my interaction with them. It's a self-deprecating funny story, but the reality is not just that. The reality is whether it's a campaign, whether somebody's the president or just your, uh, your boss in a more traditional job. In this case, I had worked for them for over a year I'd started out on that campaign where it was down 30 points in the polls, really small, kind of fledgling, right. um, real underdog. And so putting this in the context of a company, if you started at a small company and saw it through astronomical growth, and if you had the, the honor of being part of that growth and wanted to continue in that job, it's, it's almost disrespectful if you don't tell your boss that you're applying for a job, right? That's if you're just throwing your resume advice. out there. Yeah. You're just throwing your resume on a, on a on an aggregator website and not even calling your networks. I mean, I'm not saying name drop all your way up to the top, but but I should have done at least a little bit of homework and said to people, "Hey, I just want you to know I'm very serious about the opportunity if I'm if I'm qualified. And if I'm not qualified, let the like HR person who interviews you tell you that. Don't just assume that if they're not calling you that somebody even read your resume." So, that was like a real a real wake up call for somebody who just was really bad at selling themselves. And I, I try to tell that story when, when I have a little more time with people like, like this conversation, because it's, it's definitely one thing that I wish I had known in any, in any business is figuring out, you know, how to advocate for yourself in a, in a way that isn't um, slimy or creepy. Well, thank you for sharing that because as you sure. said, it is a hundred percent relevant for, for all industries, for folks at any point in their career is you do have to be your best advocate. We don't, we don't necessarily have folks doing that for us as we were in our younger years. So appreciate that for, for all the Bruins out there. We hope that you're taking this advice to heart. I wanted to call back to uh, some anecdotes that you shared earlier about um, working with the API community in the White House and then also your experiences on campus. Um, for me personally, I'm Filipino American. And so seeing you on screen was really impactful for me and for many of my friends, just to see someone who looked like us, but who wasn't playing into that model minority myth. Um, so I'm curious to know what that journey was like for you. Um, and then now being at the forefront of the AAPI representation wave that's come through, um, just what is it like for you now to see everyone who's come uh, thanks to you? Well, th that's very flattering. Thank you. I, I don't think it's thanks to me at all. I mean, if you look at, um, if, if you look at the history of, of uh, Asian American performers, it goes back really quite a quite a long way. And um, I remember when I was starting out 
uh, you know, professionally in the, I, I started at UCLA in 1995. So that's when I first tried to get an agent, which took a very long time. And I'll, I'll jump, that was your first question. I'll jump to that in a second. But I remember there were so many people who are not household names, whose names we maybe only have heard recently because they're playing the parents in a lot of shows and productions that are out there. And I remember for South Asian actors working with, uh, you know, a guy named Shashir Karup who started a theater company, a fantastic actor. Um, Mira Simhan, you know, same thing. She's worked in, in film and TV and theater, incredible, incredible actor. Um, you know, and the, the folks we could point to were a bit fewer on screen, right? It was like Ajay Naidu, Margaret Cho, there were really a handful who had who had really been shining, but they had been shining. And so um, those are the people who I feel like I've, I've had the chance to stand on their shoulders and, and uh, have opportunities that are because of them and because of the doors that, that they kind of opened. So um, I'm really glad that there's so much more undeniable diversity now than there was 15, 20 years ago. It doesn't mean there's still a long way to go, but it's, it's really nice to celebrate that. And the audiences are such a big part of that too. Streaming platforms, the fact that technology allows, you know, a, a Netflix, Amazon, or a Hulu to create content that tr the traditional ad-driven networks could never do because their model is different. You know, if your model is advertising, it's always going to be archaic because it's always looking backwards at what used to sell as opposed to thinking creatively about what could sell. Um, so anyway, those are all the kind of changes that I think it's a really exciting time for for creatives and also like for audiences, period. You know, it's not just uh, diversity for the sake of diversity. You brought this up and I, I, I agree with it. Like I find it sometimes so difficult to explain to friends who don't know what it's like to feel invisible growing up, why it's important to see yourself on screen and why, you know, why I'll see character, I'll see any like performer of color, any character who I've never seen before and in a crazy way identify with it or identify with that person, you know? Um, like Pose is such a great example. I've been binging Pose. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's on Netflix. Uh, it's, a, I think it's an FX show. Like it's essentially about the, the ballroom, uh, the ballroom community in the eighties and nineties. Um, with a ton of incredible trans performers of color. Um, I am not from this world by any stretch of the imagination. And yet I was in it, man. Like I was in these characters' lives and loved it and felt so empowered by that. Anyway, point is, it, it's, it's sometimes tough to explain if you didn't see yourself growing up on screen. And I, I've talked to friends like this who are like, you know, how, you talk about that a lot. What does that mean? Like, you know, it, it almost feels like if, if you've only seen a black and white world growing up, or if the only time you've seen people who are supposed to be South Asian were either cartoon characters or people in brown face, of course you understand they're just cartoon characters and they're just people in brown face, but it means that you feel like your opportunities are limited. It feels like maybe you don't have the opportunity to do everything there is to do in the world the way that other people have the chance to do. And as silly as that might sound for the 13 year old you, that's a that's like a real thing. And I, I remember experiencing that when I would go on early auditions and I was up against, you know, white guys in brown face a lot for uh, for roles. Um, I remember taking, you know, taking the bus down to the Fox lot when I finally had an agent and trying to get you know, auditioning for, for early projects. And there were a lot of stories like that that thankfully don't happen as often um, as they used to. But again, those are like, those are the barriers to entry that I think we, we think about like, oh, that's so crazy that that used to happen. Um, and the only reason they change is when people enter industries like this and the writing gets better and producing gets better. Audiences want to see things they haven't seen before. Sorry, I, I'm really long-winded. No, it's so true. And it's, it's great to hear um, your experiences. I think it is represent representative of a lot of experiences that we see and that we hear about nowadays with actors who are coming into their own. Um, I would like to ask, um, UCLA has been the part of the journey for a lot of APA actors like Randall Park, Ali Wong. I know Hassan Minaj went to UC Davis, so we'll call in all the UCs. Yeah. Um, but do you feel like your time at UCLA or at the UC system nurtured those passions or gave you skills to succeed in either of your careers? I think um, the fact that UCLA is such a huge school with a huge community. Uh, it gave me an opportunity to tap into to things that I was interested in. So I remember, uh, you know, like some of my favorite class, I'm a big astronomy nerd. I still am today. Most of my tattoos are astronomy related. Um, so, you know, like the intro astro class that I took, you know, it's being taught by a PhD in astrophysics. So even though it's a, it's an entry level grad uh, undergrad class, 
it still was like I, I, w- I loved it. You know, you go to a small liberal arts school, you don't necessarily get that with your with your professors or even your your TAs. So there was definitely that. But then the the dark side of that, I definitely also, you know, uh, I I feel like people might identify with. I, I took uh, I don't know if it's still called LS two, but I took LS two as an undergrad, which is a pre med leader class, um, and you're supposed to take it because if you fail, it means you can't get into med school and you should probably find a different major. So I was the dummy who took LS2 as an elective because it, it was a cells, tissues, and organs. And in uh, and it was a prereq. I think it was a prereq for some class where you would do like a, a human dissection or something. So I'm like, well, these will be my two, uh, my two electives back to back. That'll be awesome. And halfway through the, halfway through the class, and I was taking it past no pass, I think. Halfway through the, uh, after the midterm, that's right, my TA calls me and he's like, I'm just letting you know there's really no way that you're going to pass this class. I'm like, what are you talking about? I got a C on my, on my midterm and I'm taking it pass, no pass. He's like, yeah, but it's a bell curved class. So a C is actually an F and, or a D or something. So you're not going to, I'm like, what kind of BS is that, man? I got a C. I'm taking it past no pass. I'm not competing against these people for med school slots. I Maybe I'm going to play a doctor or something. That's where this will come in handy. He's like, I'm I know I'm telling you, you, you should probably drop the class. So I had to drop the class. So there were instances like that too, right? Where it's like, okay, a school of this magnitude and this size, if something's a weeder class, it is genuinely a weeder class and you cannot take this class. So there were things like that that were, that were a huge bummer too. But, but again, it was even that experience of, of getting to dabble in that for a couple of weeks before it became a permanent stain on my, on my transcripts was worth doing, you know, I think. So thanks for sharing that story as well. I love the UCLA connections and, and some of this. It almost feels like um, extra bonus footage that we're getting about your time at UCLA. And I'm sure fellow Bruins are going to really enjoy it. Uh, touching back on, on your book, You Can't Be Serious, you did mention that you sort of wrote that with other folks in mind who are maybe coming up and, and have these same um, aspirational goals. And it, it sounds like you were kind of almost writing it as, as maybe like a helpful roadmap, but how did you decide what pieces of yourself to include in the book? I mean, I'm sure that, um, you know, there's so many things you probably could touch on and, and talk about as the different experiences of even just moving across the country or, um, you know, trying to pursue something that is so competitive in Los Angeles. So what were, what were the ways in which you, you picked the advice and the stories that you wanted to share? I, I think I, I answered, um, I ended up answering a lot of questions that people typically ask me when I do guest lectures. So I, um, pre-COVID obviously would do a bunch of guest lectures every year and during Q&A with undergrads, the, the types of questions that come up are usually, a, can be answered with specific stories um, that you usually don't have time for when you're doing a Q&A at an event. So that's it's one of the reasons the book took so long to write. It took almost four years to put together. So um, so what stories to share? I mean, I, I, th- I think it's that it's going back to one of the subtexts uh, of the book, which is barriers to entry and figuring out how to um, how to navigate careers that that um, you know if if you don't have parents or loved ones in certain fields, how do you access them? It was based on on that kind of a thing and conversations around sacrifice and anger um you know there's a there's a story that i that i tell about a woman uh, so i there were a couple of couple of stories actually uh, that have to do with ucla so many great speakers come through campus right and i remember there was one in particular i think it was in partnership with the screen actors guild and by the way I t- this book took about eight months to fact check and one of the things i could never track down is the name of this actor anyway if anybody knows obviously like tweet at me or something. Okay, but, Bruins, you hear that's, that's your, uh, you're in yes, with, you can remember this professor's name. So at the time, no, it wasn't a professor, it was an oh, actor sorry. who, an who actor, was yes. doing this panel on, I think it was on campus. And she said that, uh, I think at the time she was the only black woman on network TV. Um, and uh, one of the questions was, how do you deal with uh, rejection? knowing that it's not because of a lack of talent that you're the only black woman on network TV. It's because, uh, you know, a fancy way of talking about racism is, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a lack of opportunity. <laughs> and she's, she was asked how she deals with, with rejection and, and all that. And she said something that really tempered my anger. She said, uh, 
I always make sure that I'm the best person in the room. And she talked about how she knew she had to work a thousand times harder just to get a fair shot and just to get her foot in the door. And so she was classically trained. I think she had her MFA from Yale or something and um, talked about how when she went in for an audition, she knew that when she walked out, all of the producers knew that she was overqualified. She was the best person. Um, she would prepare, you know, every actor obviously prepares for, for an audition, but she wanted to leave everything on the table and, and know that if they were going in a different direction, they knew that they were doing that despite the fact that she was the most qualified. The reason that meant a lot to me was I was dealing with typecasting at the time. It took me almost three and a half years to get an agent. Uh, you know, UCLA is one of the top three theater programs in the world. And so if you're trying to get an agent while you're an undergrad in this program, it's actually relatively easy for most people because which, what kind of agent wouldn't want to represent someone who already got into one of the top three theater programs in the world, but I couldn't get an agent, couldn't land one. And I was told by managers, you know, they would say, um, we don't want to represent you because uh, it's not worth our time because somebody who looks like you is never going to work enough in Hollywood for us to make a meaningful commission. And so I, on the one hand, I was very thankful for their candor. Um, and on the other hand, you know, the, the rage like that I would experience and the, I remember, you know, walking, I had an apartment on Strathmore and I remember being so infuriated in this apartment over the course of this one summer with all this kind of rejection. So hearing a woman like this, say these types of things, it made me realize, okay, that anger is totally justified and valid, but where can I push that energy into a place that's gonna actually be helpful to my career instead of just be angry till the day I die and nothing changes, right? So there were those kinds of things that were helpful. Thanks for sharing that, I appreciate it. And hopefully inspiring others to take a slightly more challenging route, but you're a great example of success when you do you know, set your standards high and, and going after that and not letting the uh, just challenges get in your way and stop you. So speaking of all the, the success that you've had and the work that you've done to get there, when you have now, at, now that you've added author to your resume, how do you feel that that might influence your career in the future? You've you know been promoting your book and I don't know if you plan to write again in the future, but um, do you have a sort of path that you want to explore more or do you feel like, you know what, this is great. It, it, it shared what I wanted to share and, and maybe I'll put this, you know, to rest for a minute. No, I'd love to keep writing. Um, yeah, I would, I would love to keep writing. I, I like storytelling in all forms. So I, you know, I started out in comedy and then um, did a couple of docu-series, a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of science-y kind of things. Um, most of the writing I've done up until this book has been um, fiction, right? It's been half-hour comedies for uh, for networks mostly. Um, so I'm I'm excited about this, and and uh, people seem to have enjoyed the audiobook uh, also, which was really fun. I narrated it, um, which I didn't know was an option. Like when I turned in the manuscript for the book, the editor was like, "So do you want to do you want to narrate it yourself?" I'm like as opposed to what? I'm so weird. There are so many weird specific jokes that if I don't tell, it's just going to sound like I have a chip on my shoulder. So, um, but I, I enjoyed that aspect of it too. So I would love to, to do more in, the, in that space. Yeah, I think that's always a treat for, for myself included when the author actually is the one to read the book and you hear it in their voice. That's, that's really yeah, nice. I, the feeling I wanted was I, I want you to feel like we're having a beer together. Um, and frankly, a lot of these stories are like, they come out of conversations that I had over drinks with friends anyway. Um, so that's a, that it meant a lot to me that I recorded it in that way. Cause why tell stories like this? If you're not going to let the reader or the listener feel like you're spending time together. So in that vein of letting the reader, you know, have this insight into your life and who you are and what you've done and the way that you've gotten there how have you defined success for yourself? And we, we couldn't get through the Bruin Success Podcast without me asking how you specifically define it. I, when I started out as an actor, my goal um, was I, I want to be able to pay my rent for a year just from acting. Um, and, and frankly, I, I wanted to pay my rent, period, just from acting. And so <laughs> start with, you know, you start with these early jobs that you take and I, I detail the, the, the cross between stereotyping and typecasting and paying your rent and all of that stuff. I, I, I share in a lot more detail in the audiobook, but essentially it was like, okay, if I take this one job where they're asking me to put on an accent, I can walk away from it. That choice is mine. 
But then if I do that, I'm not getting a credit on my resume and I'm not, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent just from acting. I can still have my day job. Um, but that, so sometimes I would say no to those and, and know that I wouldn't be able to pay my rent from acting. Other times I would say yes and see, you know, what that was like. So even today, I feel, I obviously feel incredibly fortunate that, um, that I've had the chance to continue to, to work as, as an actor. Um, but that was the first definition of success. And I think the ones that followed have, have tended to be a lot more artistic in nature. Um, but then it switched to realizing that the, one of the early goals of why I enjoyed acting had to do with storytelling, right? And so um, wanting to write, wanting to produce my own stuff and, um, and really have a seat at the table, you know, you, you spend so long getting your foot in the door and depending on what the industry is, part of that process, um, you forget that you have agency in, the, in, in, in any matter really. And so as you, as you work through those early jobs and rediscover that you not only have agency, but you're actually good at what you do, it's why you wanted to do it in the first place, rediscovering that, which I've really only done the last probably five or six years when I've started producing and writing things on my own. Um, that's been kind of a new, a new goal of seeing, um, seeing if there's any success in that. And the last chapter in the book, I, it deals with a show that I sold to NBC two years ago. Uh, it was called Sunnyside that I co-created with um, my friend, Matt Murray, who uh, worked with Mike Schur or works with Mike Schur for the last decade. Um, and that show was the, I loved it. We shot 11 episodes. It's my favorite TV thing that I've worked on to date. Um, we only got to air three of them before NBC pulled it off the air. So the reason that I talk in detail about kind of pulling back the curtain on what that experience was like um, was again, I, it, 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 would, it would be good to have known a lot of those things going into it. But um, I remain incredibly proud and happy of a show that uh, you know, was well received for the, the like nine people who actually saw it. <laughs> But, uh, but certainly, you know, the tanked ratings indicate that it was not necessarily, it's certainly nobody would say it's a commercial success, right? So even in dealing with failure and dealing with something that, you know, my dream was, I want this thing to be on the air for nine years. In reality, it's on the air for three episodes, and then they, they pull it off. There's a lot more to it than just that. But even that, to me, I don't look back at that experience and say, I wish I had never done it. I mean, does it bum me out? Of course. But the, the stuff that I learned from that, and where I know I'll take my next show or seeing what mistakes maybe I made and other people made in putting that together is irreplaceable. It's such a cliche to be like, well, you have to fail in order to develop a definition of success, but it's true at every level. I think people assume now like, oh, uh, you, I mean, I get, I get this question, literally get this question. Oh, so how many things do you get offered every year? Like it's, that's, first of all, I, I audition for tons of stuff just like everybody else. Um, and you know, pitching a show, there, there were shows that I pitched this past year that never got sold. There were shows that I pitched where we shot a pilot and nothing happened with it. Like that's just part of the process. And, and I'm so thankful for it because otherwise, what am I doing? I'm sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. Come on. I think that level of grit is something a lot of people shy away from talking about. They, they want to focus on what went well, the success, the straight line from point A to point B. But were there times, I mean, you, you talked about some of the struggles with representation. Were there times that you thought, mm, this isn't right for me, maybe I should give up or sort of despite all that, have you been fully committed to the career that you've now built? So, um, so you know, it, it really just so smoothly and falsely and has expanded and grown. And it seems like, you know, you, you really can't do wrong. Everything um, that you've done has been very impressive. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, there are definitely some moments where I, I thought, do I really, do I really want to do this? And I think it was, you know, times where you feel like nothing's, nothing's changing in the way that you want it to change for your own career. So for sure, there were, there were times like that when I thought maybe this isn't the right career. And again, I keep going back to barriers to entry because those were usually the, the, the trigger points for saying maybe it's time to um, find a different career. Because it, was, it wasn't about what I was confident in and it wasn't about not being able to deal with failure or not being able to deal with no, any artist. I mean, look, you're, there is something wrong with your brain if you need to be an artist. I mean that with love, right? Like it's hard to explain to people, why do you wanna enter this career with absolutely no financial or emotional stability at all with no path and you have to create your own? It's because you have to do it, right? So if there's an option and you maybe don't have to do it, 
that's where like you can do summer theater every summer for the rest of your life. It's semi-professional and you'll probably have an incredibly fulfilled year, but that's different than if you have to do it as your career. Right. So I think coming up against those barriers and then realizing I need to, it's not good enough to look at this wall in front of me and say, all right, I'm going to turn around and find something else. It's about, you know, like getting a shovel and going underneath the wall or figuring out how you're going to get around it or, you know, or just being like, well, okay, whatever's behind that wall is not necessarily what I even want. I need to build something else myself. It's that kind of stuff that ends up creeping into your head when you, when you're met with the, the maybe I should give up. Thanks. Thanks for sharing all of that with us. So I think we're going to wrap it up with some rapid fire questions. All right. Um, so real quick, what um, media are you consuming these days? TV shows, books, anything, what would you recommend? What are you doing? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm binging a lot of TV and I'm, I'm reading a bunch. Um, so fiction, I just, uh, I just read uh, Neil Patel's second book. His first book was called, if you see me, don't say hi. Both books are incredible. I, uh, I just, okay. I, I'll tell you what I binged. I, the t- <laughs> there's, there's like four, there are four shows that I, that I've binged recently. Uh, Rami on Hulu, um, Pose on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to contradict everything I said about diversity <laughs> and confess that succession and the crown were like addictions of mine. These like all white shows <laughs> that are so good, <laughs> um, but they're great. They're great shows. And they're, they're especially, you know, they're just to, to peel back the curtain on lives like that. What incredible performances. So those are the four shows that I've been watching a lot. Awesome. Um, what was your favorite place on campus? Oh man favorite place on campus probably like so I lived in Reber for my first two years um and uh we would drag a couch from the um from the study lounge into the stairwell uh and just like sit there till three in the morning and talk like five or six of us uh so probably like the stairwell in Reber South that's awesome I think people really identify with that I can picture it exactly where you're talking about um and all right the last one we have is what's your favorite UCLA memory oh favorite UCLA memory you mean besides being told that I should drop LS2 (laughs) ouch uh favorite UCLA memory there's so many it's hard to it's hard to pick it's hard to pick one um all right, you know what? I it, it's probably in it. It it's probably when um, this must have been my se- second second or third year. Um, Mira Nair, who's an incredible director, she directed a, a movie called Mississippi Masala with Denzel Washington and Sarita Chowdhury that I saw when I was a kid. I was in middle school. That was the first time I saw people on screen who uh, looked like me, who weren't cartoon characters or stereotypes. And so I remember watching this movie going, wow, maybe I can do this uh, for a living. Maybe I should try to pursue it. So Mira spoke on campus um, my third year at UCLA. And I remember waiting. I got there so early. I probably, it was like a seven o'clock speech. And I probably got there at like two in the afternoon just to get a good seat, just to stand in line. I was the only one there. I remember so clearly, this part actually is in the audiobook also, um, I remember this group from the Indian Student Union that walked by and I thought, oh, cool, they're coming too. Maybe this is my opportunity to like break through to them and they understand that it's a real career. Instead, they were just walking past and one of them made like some sly comment like, oh, there's that guy who's the theater major, what a sellout, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so the, the event itself was mostly like, mostly grad students, um, very few Asian Americans period in there. But I can't think of a more inspiring evening. It was weird because I was by myself. So it was a little bit isolating, but it was also like, I felt so proud and inspired when I walked from North Campus, um, like it was in the film building all the way back to my dorm. And I just remember smiling the whole way, being like, I'm so proud that I go to school here. I'm so proud that my campus brought this speaker here and that I got to see her. and. I, I can't believe that I saw her movie that inspired me to be a theater major and I'm a theater major here where she spoke. And it was just really cool. It was a, it was a thing I experienced by myself, but it was something that stuck with me. And sorry, the kicker to that story, huge spoiler if you haven't listened to the book yet, is 
I had the chance to, well, I guess maybe not if you know my work, but uh, I had the chance to work with Mira Nair on a film called The Namesake uh, a few years ago. And that was one of my favorite films I've ever had a chance to do. Um, and so that, that story bookends itself. And a lot of it has to do with that UCLA experience. Thank you so, so much for sharing your time and giving back and staying connected to UCLA. We are so proud to have you as an alumni. And it's been really exciting to hear about your journey from student to alumnus, lecturer, author, actor, writer, and more. Um, everyone listening out there, if you have not read or heard Cal Penn's book, please go get your copy, download your copy if you can't be serious to hear a little bit more about these wonderful and interesting stories and maybe getting some advice on how to navigate these, these different uh, political entertainment and uh, these different in worlds and industries. So thanks again for all your time, Cal. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for our interview with Cal Penn. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and we remind you to pick up his new book, You Can't Be Serious. As a new part of the podcast, we'll be sharing a career tip at the end of each episode. This episode's tip is about paying it forward from alumni Sheena Sharifi. She says, as you advance in your career and take on more responsibility, it's easy to feel like there's less and less time in the day. She's been amazed at the time mentors have invested in her and noticed they all believed in paying it forward. When she gets an email or LinkedIn request from someone wanting to chat about their career, she always finds the time to connect. It's a small way to pay it forward. Thanks, Sheena. Have you been curious about a specific industry or role? Take Sheena's advice. Reach out to Bruins that have raised their hand on UCLA One to set up a networking or career chat. Go to www.uclaone.com now to create your profile and search the directory for Bruins in your desired fields or roles. You can filter for alumni who have said they are available to connect. If you have a career tip of your own and would like to be featured on the podcast, you can email a voice memo or written tip to ace at support.ucla.edu. We look forward to highlighting your strategies for success with the Bruin community. Join us for more episodes in the coming weeks and follow us on the UCLA Alumni Career Engagement and UCLA Alumni Association Facebook and Instagram handles. We'll put those in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Go Bruins.